0: Are you truly confident that you can get them the best execution on your own and meet that threshold that that, that someone's been doing it for 20 years could?
1: Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer, with me excited to have Vernon Beckford. Vernon, how are you doing today?
0: Doing great, thanks for having me, Todd.
1: Good, well, I appreciate you having uh, having yourself on the show joining us and uh, excited to dive in because you are the CEO of Diversified Lending Solutions, which is a capital advisory firm for small and mid-sized real estate companies, so perfect timing. it, you're, you know gonna gonna help us kind of navigate through how operators, you know, a lot of them struggle to raise capital, both the, on the debt side and the equity side. So how can we uh, navigate through that and how can we get our next deal funded, which at this point in time, uh that's definitely an important topic because well the debt market and the equity market is literally like shifting between our our toes right now so excited to hear kind of what you're seeing out on the uh, on the street and uh and really dive in so with that said why don't you just give our listeners a little bit more about your background and and then we'll dive into what you got going on today
0: Sure. No, I appreciate it. So, uh, Vernon Beckford, CEO of Diversified Lending Solutions. Uh, My background, uh, to give you a little context for how we decided to start the business, was in Wall Street. I started off on uh, the commercial mortgage-backed security desk at Credit Suisse. And uh, a lot of my early years in real estate were working for very large institutions that helped other fairly large institutions grow. And what I discovered was that's a great place to learn, but I realized very quickly that once you started to try to do smaller deals on your own, to try to replicate what you were seeing in the kind of bigger more institutional space, very quickly you realize that the resources, the transparency, the process becomes a lot more nebulous, a lot more confusing, a lot more inconsistent. And it, um, it becomes many times a scramble um, whether you're bright, whether you have resources, it becomes a scramble to put deals together. And so the goal for us in starting DLS was to be able to apply the institutional expertise that we've been able to accumulate over the years, we being my partner and I, and be able to apply that for small to mid-sized operators that wanna grow, they don't, they don't wanna take 30 years to get there, uh, you know, they, they, they wanna be able to look at themselves a decade from now and say, wow, I really created something sizable How do we help bridge that gap? So part of that is in debt and figuring out how to get you a bigger loan um, faster to get you in the right rooms with the credible lenders that want to fund your projects and are not quick to dismiss them. And then the other part of that is on the equity side, which is how do we find ways to make the pathway a little bit simpler for you, whether that be funding your earnest money deposit um, so that you can free up short term liquidity, whether that be bringing a key principal to a deal. Uh, so that you can meet the net worth liquidity requirements under loan, uh, whether that be maybe providing rescue equity uh, capital in the event that you need to close out around fairly quickly um, and don't want to lose a deal. Or if it's just being more uh, in touch with programmatic capital sources, whether that be private equity or large institutions that you just wouldn't speak to. So that was always the impetus behind why we started and and, and that's really what brought us today. And obviously, having started uh, the business going on 3 years now um, it, it, right in the beginning of Covid took us into one period of of, of volatility and fear and and trepidation. And now we're kind of right back in, into another one. So um, you know these are the times that are. are in many cases the most terrifying but 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 bring a lot of opportunity uh, for 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 investors as well
1: yeah very true and we'll see what happens obviously the story is uh just starting to maybe unfold here and what type of opportunity we're going to see and you know how how uh, crazy things get is yet to be determined you know we're, we're speaking what is it uh, November 2nd? uh, 2022. So we'll see, uh, to be determined, but I think definitely we're going to see some sort of shake up a little bit and it brings opportunity for people. And regardless, I, I, well, we're going to see shake up, but we're already seeing it, right. And it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see this big, huge crash, but we are seeing interest rates going up drastically and that's changing investors, uh, returns and expectations and um, really kind of messing with what has been the norm for I mean how many years did we have interest rates that were either falling or pretty stable It's been it's exactly. been since 2006, 2007 that interest rates probably peaked. maybe it's even been maybe even before that, and now we've been seeing these interest rates down, 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 down. I I can remember, Vernon, back when interest rates were at like five percent. Of course. In let's call it 2012. And people were like, Well, they only got one way to go. And and it wasn't down that people were talking about. <laughs> they only got I one remember way.
0: those days too.
1: Yeah. And it's crazy. And then they got down to, into the, you know, mid even lower fours and the same sentiment was like, they've only got one way to go. They're not going down. And then they go down and then they go down and then all of a sudden they're sitting there. You can get some interest rates for, you know, two, we, we locked in one at 2.7%. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like. Phenomenal. and, And phenomenal. Right. And now you go, well, Of course, they went up.
0: Of course, it's very easy to get um, lulled into a you know sense of um, false security in that this is just the way it should be.
1: Yeah, and I think most people did. They said they said this isn't going to end. Like you know, it's been like this for forever. It felt like
0: you don't know how many years. It's funny because I was I was talking to some uh, business school friends of mine who around uh, called 2013 were saying, you know, listen, rates, rates can't go lower because it's just going to overinflate the market. Outset value is going to get crazy. In fact, I'm pulling away from the market because I'm scared. And they came in lower, came in lower, came in lower, just kept going lower. And so for years people have been saying, listen, um, this will have an implication At, at, at some point, the party has to end. And so, What I do try to say when I speak to clients, uh, especially folks who haven't gone through this cycle before, or maybe got just so used to extremely low interest rates, which is the environment we were in previously is not a steady state norm, right? If folks took advantage of it, that's wonderful. And there was a lot of uh, returns to be, be made because rates were so low, but that doesn't mean that that's an inevitability we should take for granted. And every market, right, whether it's a higher interest rate or a lower interest rate environment, will pr- present opportunities, right? Yep. doesn't yep. mean that you can buy what you bought yesterday at the same price and there may be some time like we are in today where people are trying to go through price discovery all over again to figure out where asset values truly are. But um but but yeah, it, it, you can't live in a in a zero interest rate environment indefinitely. Eventually it's going to yep. catch up.
1: Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Like we already said, what are you seeing on your end? Um, you know, I mean, see, you're probably talking with a lot of investors, a lot, a lot of um, people in the market. What do you see on your end? Anything that, you know, either concerns you or excites you um, as you're looking forward?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So on the debt side, what I'm seeing is originally, if you kind of looked at the the whipsaw of, of, of the of the year today, bridge lenders were really providing a lot of great leverage uh, for folks that were doing some sort of value add strategy. Anywhere in the high seventies until even mid eighties on on loan to cost, and that was a great product when you could get that in the fours and you could maybe you know you can push in the fives what what the rate rise has done is forced many of those bridge lenders to say listen we're not confident that we can make you that loan and still get refinanced comfortably uh, on the back end there's been so much rent increases you know in many markets that unless you're buying something at a really great price um that's below market we're not just going to give you the benefit that rents are going to grow so much over the next couple years that you'll just grow yourself into a place you can refinance easily so they've been cutting back their leverage right so the so the guys that were providing 80 percent before maybe provide 60 percent today and obviously that creates an issue when you need to raise equity and figure out where you're going to plug that hole a lot of those bridge lenders are also financing themselves uh with various credit lines and credit facilities or they're using the securitization market to basically either sell their loans or sell pieces of their loans or finance their businesses. So when they're doing that and the pricing on their end goes up dramatically Mm -hmm. or the securitization market dries up on their end, well, guess what? That means that their uh, ability to make new loans goes down. And so you have the the mix of bridge lenders both coming down in leverage and also saying, hey, we're going to be super particular in which deals we fund. Whereas before we were kind of fighting over each other to compete for deals. Mm -hmm. We wanted to push on deals we didn't love, but we need to be in the market. Now it's like, if it's not my type of deal, my cup of tea, I'm just going to pass on it. So that's number one. Number two is that the banks, at least for a very short period of time, seem to be kind of a source of relief. And that if you had a good bank relationship, you could still get pretty attractive terms. And they would be fairly creative in doing uh, not just traditional cash flowing uh, perm loans, but also doing hybrid loans where they would do a bridge and then that would convert to a permanent and things like that. At, at also fairly high leverage. So that turned out for a short window of time to be the, the the place to run to. But what I observed very quickly is that it seemed like the banks all got the memo on the same day, which was, listen, you know, you need to scale back. And, and, and so um, what, what has happened then is that the banks have been Reducing their leverage in turn, and they've also been highly selective of working with repeat borrowers or folks that no. they if they're not repeat borrowers, think they have a programmatic or long term potential. So when the banks started retrenching, I think the combination of those two factors really contribute to especially small investors saying, "Well, geez, it's it feels like you went from feast to famine." Take those factors, and and then on the equity side. I think many equity investors are saying, we don't know what's happening. We don't know where the economy is going. Do I want to really jump out there right now on a deal without any transparency as to where the market's going to be a quarter from now? Um, Knowing that the Fed is going to increase rates uh, again, very, you know, in the short term. And so there's a little bit of what I would call a, a, a gridlock in the sense that. If 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 the deal just happens to fit the right parameters, there's financing for it all day, and that's for the vanilla categories. If it's not vanilla, if it's in a in a in a market that people don't love, it's very hit or miss.
1: Explain explain vanilla, right? It just
0: sure. So I would describe vanilla as you have a uh, thirty-unit multifamily complex uh, that's ninety-five percent occupied in a bustling uh city or 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 suburb adjoining a city you know every lender and you know out right now is going to quote that deal because that's the deal that they can find some resolve in that regardless of whether the economy softens a bit that that asset is pretty much performing in a stabilized yeah and it just feels good and it feels risk risk protected if you or the um, individual bringing a class uh, B office building in a tertiary market and, and your premise is, I'm going to reposition that office building because um, people are coming back to the offices. A lot of lenders are going to just kind of look at you and yawn. And even if they could believe you on a intellectual basis, they're not going to reach right now to, to be the one that proves you right. um, except if they've been living in that space and that segment of the market and really just have a ton of faith in it already have a, have a thesis on that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. How, how do back to the bridge loans, you know, how do these loans that were taken, you know, two years ago, three years ago that are expiring and know they maybe have to have an extension or maybe they've already taken their extensions how does this how does that play out where they locked it in at sulfur was at you know next to zero and now sulfur is sitting here at three probably raising soon rising soon so how does how does that play out with these bridge lenders are you seeing any anything happening there
0: Love that question because I think that's the right question based off where we are. And I think a couple things will happen. Um, on the debt side, there are bridge lenders that, so, um, when call it. So I used, I used to work for a, uh, a life insurance company called global Atlantic. And we started a, a mes lending platform in 2013 mm-hmm. back then. Um, there were a lot of deals where there was room for mezz because you'd have a senior loan that was 60 to 65 percent uh, loan to value. And then you could, you know, add an incremental five to 10 percent of debt via mezzanine loan. As the market got more and more aggressive and, and, and um, the mezz opportunity, you know, became a lot less common because folks were comfortable moving up in leverage on the senior side and pricing continued to compress. Mm-hmm. Well, now, when you have bridge lenders that were doing 80 and are only doing 55 to, to 60, you know, not all of that's going to be replaced by equity. Somebody's going to need to either come in and, and fill the gap w- with sub debt or preferred equity, or new equity players are going to have to come in to recapitalize those deals. So I'm seeing more bridge lenders say, listen, we, we see an opportunity to pivot. And be a, um, not just a traditional senior lender, but be a mezzanine lender, be a pref equity lender, do stretch seniors where we will do a senior loan and add an incremental piece and price that like a mez to get you to some blended cost of capital. And they're, and they're living on the, on the fact that they know so many of these deals in the next 12 months are going to come up for refinance. And they're not going to be able to, 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 to do it. So I think that that is going to be a really interesting opportunity, um, both on the debt side and the equity side. I know there'll be some opportunistic equity players that'll be able to sit there and say, OK, you're, you, you, know, you have a good deal. You're, you're, you're a bit short, 5 to 10% short on proceeds to get taken out. Let me step in and help recapitalize the deal for a nice piece of the, of the project. So I anticipate both of those things happening. And I think we're in a point where, you know, people kind of anticipate that it has to mean some massive kind of wave of foreclosures. And I don't necessarily think that that's the case because the, the, the asset valuations, even if you think asset values um, come in 20 to 25%, I do think that there's a market that's there to, 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 to cover a large portion of that such that you're not going to see, at least where we are today, wide-scale distress, um, you know, uh, in the form of a wave of foreclosures, but there's going to be a, enough pain to create some new opportunities for, for new entrants in the space.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So I, I'm thinking about it right now. I mean, the, the number one thing is if you're sitting in that, if you're sitting here listening to this and you put a bridge loan on, and you're seeing that time tick down to where it's starting to get to, You know, within six months or probably even less or even more than that out, um, you want to start having conversations with your lenders and find out what can happen and figure out where your equity is going to come from if you're going to be in that position. Otherwise, you know, you might get foreclosed on if you're not being proactive. Couldn't agree more.
0: I mean, now's not the time to kind of say, okay, you know, let's, let's wait and see what happens at maturity. <laughs> Absolutely, not. You want to be proactive and figuring out, okay, what is the realistic refinance proceeds that I'm looking at so that I can a brace my equity investors that we're going to have mm-hmm. some issues to navigate here, um, which may either call for additional capital calls or, or, or things of that nature, or, Hey, we're going to have to get creative up front and building our relationships with, with, um, an assortment of players, maybe not just the bank, but maybe a a mes lender, maybe a PREF equity lender um, in order to bridge what is going to be not, it's not a question of if there will be a gap, but just how big the gap will be.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so it might be an opportunity as well for people, especially people that have some capital or can bring capital. You know, if you can uh, raise a fund to come in to some of these deals, you're not necessarily buying a foreclosure. You're not necessarily buying the deal specifically, but you're buying into the equity is what I'm hearing you say. And so you're you're getting maybe a part of the GP or you're getting a better LP split or whatever it might be. Is, is that kind of what you're thinking is going to happen?
0: Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. And I think that there's so much dry powder on the sidelines that have for years has mm-hmm. been waiting for the distressed opportunity. Yeah. That, that, um, you know, it's certainly not for a lack of capital that's available for, for these types of opportunities.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've been talking to people, multiple, many people. I, I mean, I know, I know several people that sold, Um, either all or a big chunk of their portfolio between let's call it 2015 and about 2018. I, I know, I mean, I would say it's in the dozens of people that I know that sold most of or all of their portfolio between that time and they're waiting for an opportunity. And now 2015 is a long time to be waiting, but they, and most of them haven't just sat on their money and done nothing. Right, they've done other things, uh, but either way, they're they're waiting for good opportunities. And I, I think you know of the dozens of people I know, there's there's many many thousands of others that have done sure. more things.
0: Absolutely, I hear that all the time. And I think folks were were convinced that um, you know many folks were convinced that the party had stopped, and so it, it was time to take chips off the table. A very rational thing uh, conclusion to come to. So I know those folks are sitting you know, waiting, you know, you know, chomping at the bit to see a little bit more softness. I mean, if you look at the REIT market, it's just an indicator of, of where we're headed. I mean, REITs are down anywhere 20 to 30 percent, right? Wow. That's not reflected in the pricing of the, of the private sector. And so even if you're seeing and what we're hearing is that, you know, sellers are kind of coming off of their numbers 5 to 10 percent, you know, versus where they were before, that's still a healthy difference between where the public markets are pricing real estate and where the, the private markets are pricing it. So yeah,
1: there, that, there, um, another 10 to 20% to go if you're looking at the public market. Correct. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, you talked about on the, on the equity side, um, you know, funding earnest money, bringing in a KP. You know, how how does that work for somebody that's coming to you and says, "Hey, Vernon, look, we want, we got this great deal. We want to do it, but we don't have the earnest money. We don't we, we don't qualify. Uh, our net worth and liquidity is not big enough. Like, take take me through that kind of setup. I guess what well, how does it look?
0: So when we set up the earnest money deposit um, loan program, really, it was meant to, to address a couple of uh, pain points. One was, listen, it's a competitive market. I'm bidding on a whole bunch of properties. I don't know which one I'm going to win. I may hit two or three at the same time. And if that's the case, I don't want to have to clear out my whole bank account to, to fund the earnest money deposit. I'm going to be raising capital, whether it be on a syndicated basis or I have a strategic high net worth partner. And I just need to be able to go to contract and 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 fund the EMD. And so, so that's a very kind of that, that was a, an issue we were hearing often. Um, the, the other was I want to do bigger deals and, and, and bigger deals are going to call for a bigger EMD. So. Um, it's, it's, um, so I need to be in a position where I'm comfortable that if I need a hundred thousand or 200,000 or $500,000 EMD, um, that's not going to be the hurdle that prevents me from getting over, over the the speed bump. So what we do is we essentially have two verticals. One is for soft and one is for hard. There was a time and it drove us crazy. Not, not too long ago where everybody would say, Oh, I gotta go hard. I gotta go hard. And we said, well, yeah, we get it, but but do you really have to go hard? Yeah, if I want to be competitive, I gotta go hard. So let me st- so so I'll start with the hard. It, it, yeah. for-
1: go for- hard day one. $1 million dollars hard day one. I'm just
0: going yeah, exactly. Crazy. Feet of my pants. So in cases like that, obviously that's a very risky proposition, right? Yeah. You're funding the first. If you're asking me to fund that, or you're asking our capital partners to fund that, that's the first dollar of risk. And, and, and it's binary. If, if you don't close, there's no recovery on, on that yes. dollar. Yeah. So, so that's a very high risk dollar. So from our perspective, the way that we structure that is um, you, we fund the hard EMD um, in exchange for economics in the, in the transaction, right? Because that's really making a, an investment in your project. And it's structured as a loan and we want to see that the EMD funds exist, right? Yeah. It's, it's not that you just don't have them and you want us to be the first seed investor in your deal. And if it goes bad, you didn't put any skin in the game and it's all on us, which would just be a complete, you know, misalignment of, <laughs> of risk. <laughs> it's going to be, hey, I have the resources, but for some idiosyncratic reason, I don't want to fund them into this project this, at this moment. And I'm realizing that I'm entering into a loan that if for whatever reason, right, um, uh, we don't close the deal, there's still collateral for, for me to yep. provide. So, that, so that's the hard. Um, on the soft side, it's far more straightforward because a soft, you know, you could effectively uh, exit from the contract if for whatever reason, the agreement uh, in due diligence, you find that you don't like something or, or, or what have you, or yep. there's a financing contingency that case, it's a very straightforward process. We effectively charge a a fee that's either upfront um, on an ongoing basis or at closing. And we don't even price that as a profit. We charge, you know, anywhere from one to 2% uh, generally of the face value of the EMD. And the reason we do that is because we just want to offer that service to our clients and we want the debt assignment. Hmm. And, and, And so, um, in, in that instance, that's really a courtesy that we're trying to, to just free up some liquidity for uh, a sponsor that knows they're going to be raising, but they just need to move um, and they need to move relatively quickly. So that's EMD and I can get into a little it's, bit more.
1: It's probably deal specific, but what about is something like that, uh, you know, cost percentage wise of the of the amount?
0: Yeah. So on a soft basis, that's usually, um, one to 2% of yep. the underlying EMD on a hard basis. Um, it's generally, and again, it varies on the risk of the deal, yep, the, strength of the sure. sponsor, but that could be anywhere from, you know, five to 10% of the GP, um, um, uh, in exchange for, for a hard EMD.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, that sounds fairly in line with what I've heard, um, for other people from other people too. So, uh, and then bringing the KP explain, I I guess, you know, I I think most of my listeners or a lot of my listeners probably know what, what a key principle is and what that means. But at first, just give us a quick little explanation of, of why somebody would need that. And then, uh, maybe we talk a little, little detail on that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so when you get a loan, it's either going to be on a non-recourse or a recourse basis. Mm-hmm. Most people, if they can, will take advantage of non-recourse for obvious reasons. Yep. But even in a non-recourse loan, there will be recourse carve-outs that say if the sponsor does X, Y, and Z, it triggers recourse. Yep. If you commit bad acts, if you commit fraud, if you just took a a toxic vat and just tossed it on the property and made it radioactive overnight. You know, those are things that will trigger recourse. And so the lender is going to say, well, we don't, it can't just be you or grandma on the recourse, you know, that has $5 in your bank account um, that that has no teeth for us to actually uh, pursue. It's got to be someone that has sufficient net worth and liquidity that we think there's real gravitas behind having a guarantee. And so usually lenders will set a threshold, whether that be, and it varies depending on the deal, but a, a safe threshold is wanting to see a key principle that has 100% of net worth of the loan amount and 10% a liquidity uh, uh, as a percentage of the loan amount. And that's a, just a general rule. And that's a negotiated point. And so what we would do is we would bring an investor that, that uh, understands these, um, These deal structures and would come in as a key principle as a partner in the deal in exchange for a piece of the equity um, and provide that guarantee. There are instances where, let's say, as the risk profile of a deal goes up, let's say it's a new construction project that'll usually be either a partial or a full recourse loan, meaning that Mm -hmm. there are no conditions in that instance, obviously the risk is, is higher. Yeah. But we could also bring a, a a partner for the same purpose, effectively to show mm-hmm. the lender that there's a partner there that has the liquidity and the net worth to to back the guarantee.
1: That's got to be a lot more. I would think a lot more expensive. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go, hey Vernon, I got this deal. It's full recourse. Um, Absolutely. But we need a and, KP. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's it's more expensive. Yeah. Um, and, it's, it, and it's very much deal. I mean, deal and sponsor focus. And I would even say sponsor focus before the deal. Yeah, none, none of the investors we work with are just going to do that deal, even if it's a, a slam dunk, if they don't have a lot of confidence in the individual who's actually going to be responsible for overseeing mm-hmm. it. Right, right.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even with the non recourse, you want to have you want to feel really comfortable with that person because a lot of people, when you say, well, it's bad boy car votes, like, well, I'm not going to do anything fraudulent. I'm going to be okay. Well, but it's not that simple. Like if you're Mm. not doing the financial reporting that's required, that could be a case for it. If you're, if you switch the property management company without giving your lender notice, you know, those aren't like fraudulent things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're not on American greed because you switched a management company, but there are wires that you could trip for sure that will put you in default and that could potentially also not only just put you in a non monetary default, but trigger a recourse. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, the biggest thing that I found, uh, you know, that um, in terms of importance is credibility and uh, transparency. Yeah. And honesty, and being able to demonstrate you have a history of that. I think we're we're all big girls and big boys. We understand things will happen sometimes that don't um, weren't didn't go as planned. The idea is that if and when that happens, is the sponsor going to be honest and upfront about it? Are they going to yeah. hide it? Or are they the kind of person that no, they wouldn't? You know, go off and steal a million dollars. But if it was the decision between being on the straight and narrow and doing something that was in the gray to, to, to kind of keep themselves going, a lot of people, you know, you know, it's not clear, wouldn't, wouldn't slip into the gray. So yeah, that's the really important piece um, for, 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 for us and, and feeling really confident that, that the sponsor is is going to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, and, and a lot of it, like you make it's not going to probably matter much if, the, unless they're doing something fraudulent, right? If they are truly doing something fraudulent, or if they're taking toxic waste and throwing it on the property, uh, whether the loan's performing or not, that's probably going to trigger some, some recourse. But if it, it's really when things start going poorly and all of a sudden the lender goes, hey, you know, we're going to... This property's now it's non-performing. We're going to take receivership, and by the way, you switched property management companies without our permission, and yeah. this is good, you know, or something like that, whatever it is, and that that's that's where it puts the risk on the KP. So, how, how does a KP get paid then if they're you know bringing? I guess they're because they're not necessarily bringing liquidity into the deal. They maybe could, but they're they could. but. They're not for the KP purposes, so how are they getting paid? Yeah,
0: so it's, it's a very simple uh, structure. They're getting a piece, of the general partner, um, and again, that, that, that range varies depending on the deal, the sponsor, whether it's mm-hmm. recourse, non-recourse, You know, depend, that could be anywhere from as low as 5%, again, on a very, very high-quality sponsor, high-quality deal. It could be as high as, frankly, 30% if it's a marginal borrower on a marginal deal. And, and, and in many instances, even, even at that, it, it may not make sense if it's just not enough confidence in the sponsor themselves. So it, it, can, be, it can be fairly affordable. It could be fairly expensive. It's very much dictated by the situation.
1: Good stuff, Vernon. What's your what's your like uh, niche deal size? Do you have a specific deal size that you really like dealing with?
0: Yeah, so so I'm a deal junkie. So I, I, you know, I, I you know, I'm not afraid are. of small deals. Um, yeah. You know, typically we we like to be at least over a million bucks. I'd say yeah. our average is somewhere in the five five range, and then you know we're very easily could migrate up to a fifty million dollar deal. Um, we uh, we we closed a uh, $40 million project in, in Houston. That was a great project. We just closed a $2 million project in Detroit. So, um, you know, it, 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 we, we try to um, grow with our clients so that the client that's doing the two and the $5 million deal with us now is the one in position to do the $20 million deal next year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. So Vernon, I got a, I got a deal. I'm looking, um, take, take me through the process. You know, I, I gotta, I I gotta find the equity and the debt and all that kind of stuff. So, so, you know, where do you start? You know, if if I'm, if I'm a new, if I'm a new buyer, how how do I start?
0: Yep. So typically, um, folks will start talking to us either once the project has gone under contract or, or they think it's going to go under contract in very short order. If, if, if it's gone under contract and they know they need EMD, in some instances they don't, we deal with that immediately. Uh, on the KP side, again, if they need it, uh, we offer it. If they don't, um, that's fine. And then really it's about for us finding uh, one of two things. They may be confident in their ability to raise the equity, at which point we're really going to focus on the debt. They may say, hey, we're confident in the equity, but we wanna speak to, uh, let's say private equity. We've traditionally gone, let's say syndicated route. So we'll do a dual track where we don't stand in your way. If you wanna syndicate to retail, we will go out and facilitate intros to private equity and use that as a dual track. While we're doing that, really the whole process is gonna be undergirded by four, four key steps. One is litmus testing. Litmus testing, meaning we're going to look at your deal. We're going to evaluate it as a fresh set of eyes. We're going to look at the underwriting. We're going to evaluate whether we think you actually have an attractive deal to go out to the market in the first place. Doesn't make a lot of sense for any of us to to scramble and take down deals that make no sense.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's really the upfront work of talking through the business plan with you, talking through who you're going to hire from the GC side, how you're going to do this. Um, so we all feel like you have something that's really, truly actionable. Yep. Once we do the litmus testing and we feel good about it, then the next step is about objection smoothing. Objection smoothing is that everyone thinks once they convince themselves they like their deal, everyone's going to love their deal. But the reality is there are going to be major risks involved in that deal that may turn somebody else off and may make a lender say, even if I want to fund it, yeah, I'm going to only fund it at 60% leverage versus 70%. So the whole goal is for us to to actually put together a plan as to what objections are people going to raise with your deal. Let's address them preemptively in the marketing that we put out to, to, to folks. And let's also kind of have a war chest of the things that we're not putting out to the market that we expect a savvy person would ask that we already have an answer to, and we don't have to, 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 to run around and figure it out. Third part is going to be deal de-risking. So deal de-risking means, Let's say you go out to a private equity fund they want to give you a term sheet let's say you go out to a lender they want to give you a term sheet depending on the lender depending on the shop the term sheet is going to be either very brief or it could be long and there's going to be a lot of minutiae and granularity into how they're offering the terms and our goal is not to get so excited that you got a term sheet because you said oh the market's tight i got a term sheet it hit my, uh, hit my leverage and it hit my, um, my, my, uh, the right interest rate. I want to go with this, this lender. Slow down. There's probably 20 other terms we want to address in that term sheet to make sure that we like it. And if we don't, we're going to push on those and we're going to find ways to either get somebody else that will improve on them or we're going to make sure that you're covered there. And then the, the last piece of that puzzle is assuming you're comfortable with whatever terms on the lending side and on the equity side that and you've accepted, let's say a term sheet, and now we're going into diligence, is that you don't basically fumble on the one yard line and start um confusing the process or over muddying the process to a point where someone comes back and says, Yeah, I know I was gonna offer you X, but now I realize I'm not gonna offer you X. Either I'm out. Or I'm, or I'm significantly changing my terms because I've discovered new things, which is the worst feeling in the world. So we found that sometimes operators undershare, sometimes they overshare, sometimes they provide information in ways that are confusing. So someone is now led to a different conclusion. We wanna be in a position where that doesn't happen. We have a clean due diligence process so that folks get the information they need and can get their, answer, their questions answered without a whole bunch of confusion. And get a get get you the terms you actually you know, um, you know, thought you were going to get when you signed signed the term sheet, and so that's really kind of the funnel of the process, and that's where uh, we have fun and we excel in terms of approaching your deal programmatically and thoughtfully, not just out here kind of scrambling, calling a guy here and doing this and throwing a, a file here, really running a clean process.
1: Vernon, I was going to ask you my next question. It was going to be. Oh. Why, why go through somebody like you? And why not just like, why don't I just go and, and call the lender directly? Why don't I just go and call the private equity di- directly? Why don't I just go and find a couple people that can do the EM and the KP and save? Cause I know you're going to charge me fees, right? You, that's, that's how you make money. So why not do that? You really just answered my question, but anything else you want to say on that? What's your value? Why go with you versus trying to do it on my own?
0: No, absolutely. It's a fair question. You know, why hire a uh, a roofer or a contractor to, you know, to renovate your house? You could do that on your own. And guess what? How many times have we heard stories of people that did that and were just banging their head against the wall? Because, A, they realized how much of a time sink it was. B, they realized that they were amateurs and not experts in that specific area and they were learning on the job. And then C, they realize that the end product didn't come out as good as they actually wanted it to anyway. So y- you can always r- take the risk of doing something on your own. And I don't want to create the, 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 the fallacy that people can't uh, learn. But the fact is that this is a field uh, that, where expertise matters, where if you speak to hundreds of lenders, you understand the nuances between who's real, who's not. You understand what terms they're not speaking to that they're going to jam you with later you understand the questions to ask, and you understand how to answer questions. And so all of that in concert is a skill, it's an art. And um, for most people, it's just not worth the time yeah. and, 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 and the risk of what happens if you get it wrong. Not just for you, but your investors. Think about it that way. You have investors that you're acting in, in, a, in a fiduciary capacity to get them yeah. uh, the best outcome possible are you truly confident that you can get them the best execution on your own and meet that threshold um, uh, that, that, that someone's been doing it for 20 years uh, could? That's the question.
1: Yeah. I, you know, you're dealing with millions of dollars, a big transaction. It's not, it's not, you know, you you mentioned roofing your own house or, you know, something like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're also dealing with a $10,000 you know, roofing job or whatever it might be. This is millions of dollars. This is, yeah. you, you'll, you're you going to lose your butt if, if things go wrong. And a lot of times you're dealing with other people's money. And so exactly. you want to do right. So what I have noticed in, in, there is an immense amount of value with a lender such, or say a broker such as yourself, that can actually get the deal put together. But here's the value comes in with those four things that you mentioned that you are underwriting the deal. And you're going, Hey, I know the lenders looking at this. I like your guys underwriting, but I know the lender. Let's move this number to here. Let's move this number to here. By the way, guys, you're light here, but you're heavy here. We're going to change those. So the lender's not going to question it because I know exactly what's going to happen. That's, that's how you're coming to the deal. Hey guys, what's your business plan? Let's get this all organized. Let's get your, all your files organized, your net worth and you know, your, your, all your statements and all that kind of stuff. And you're putting this whole big, huge package together in front of a massive amount of potential lenders and you are getting them to compete against each other. And then you also know the negotiating points and these term sheets. I mean, there's just a, an immense amount of value to having a broker on your side that can actually put all those little pieces together. And I've, I haven't, I, I don't do it myself, but I've used certain lenders, certain brokers, I mean, that don't really pay attention or maybe care or just don't have the systems in place, whatever it might be. They're just not that good. And then I've dealt with the others that are good and man, they are worth their weight in gold when they are literally going to bat for you every single day. They'll show up at the appraiser appraisals if they need to, they'll do, they'll do it for you. And those are the brokers who are going to get your deal across the line. And maybe you're spending some money on them, but they are saving you massive amount in the end. So that's my commercial for you. It wasn't meant to be a commercial, but um, <laughs> it's just the truth. It's just really how I've dealt with these brokers. And man, I, again, they're worth their weight in gold. The ones that are the ones that are going to be good.
0: Yeah, completely agree. And I and I I thank you for your sentiment, and I completely agree with it because the difference between uh, a good and a bad advisor is night and day. Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, All right, Vernon, we got to wrap up. Uh, Anything else you want to pass to our listeners before I ask you a couple little last questions?
0: You know, the only thing I would say is that it's never too early to have a conversation if you're either Mm, thinking about, you know, what should I be, how should I be thinking about X, Y, Z? The biggest um, issue that we encounter is folks come to us too late. And they say, you know, I have to do X by next week. And you say, it's just not enough time to actually really be helpful. So get, you know, get to us early or get to whomever you're going to speak to early. In a process to make sure that you're actually just preparing yourself and giving yourself the biggest chance to to succeed.
1: You know, somebody who was just listening to this podcast. They haven't bought anything. Uh, they're they're wanting to buy something. They're maybe they're waiting for the market to shift a little bit more or whatever it might be. But or they're just learning. Uh, but they, they're going to buy. Are are is that too early for them to call you and have a conversation? No. No, by
0: design, what we've done is that we also uh, focus on the residential investment space as well. And, and that was deliberate in that it's usually a bridge to commercial for folks that are just starting. So if you're looking to finance your first flip, you're looking to finance your first SFR, your first um, vacation rental property, you should reach out to us as well because the goal is to get you started and, and get you up and running so that before you know it, you could be doing your first commercial project.
1: Love it. Love it. All right. So a couple last questions. What's a favorite book that you've either read recently or are reading right now?
0: Um, that's a good one. So um, <laughs> the favorite book in the, in the context of real estate is, it's a, it's a book about the story of Robert Moses. And Robert Moses, for those who don't know, I'm a New Yorker, but Robert Moses was effectively the, the, the real estate power broker for decades, that hmm. for better or worse, um, through his various roles, uh, connected to the, to the local uh, municipal government, was basically the power broker and kingmaker um, when it came to bridges, tunnels, highways. Hmm. Um, and, and the legacy that he uh, has left has been one that's highly mixed and people credit him with some things and blame him for other things. <laughs> but it's a tremendous story about building cities and what goes well and what goes bad and, and who can be the beneficiaries and, and who can be on the, on the wrong end of, of, of the curve. So hugely um, controversial character, um, but, but anyone who's interested in real estate and anyone who's interested in urban planning or, or, um, or uh, city building, uh, that you know that, that 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 that's a figure that they should read up on. Cool, cool.
1: Um, all right. So, last question: What are your three pillars of wealth creation?
0: Great question. So, I'm going to approach the question a little bit um, philosophically and less tangibly, because I think that um, that's more helpful. The three things that I would say, especially in this modern society. Is one, um, pick a specialty. I find that in today's uh, commerce landscape, folks are so concerned, in many cases, especially younger generations, about missing out on the next hot thing or missing out on the boat that they're constantly trying to find the next big thing that'll get them wealthy or rich. And in the process, you, you look back 20 years and you're saying, well, How did I get here? Because you never really tethered yourself to something and gave yourself the opportunity to be successful in it, Mm. build up the hours of expertise in it, right? Um, The the second pillar I would say is consistency. Again, this is a very boring trait, right? To just be able to to say, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy multifamily, and I'm going to rinse, repeat. I'm going to buy. I'm going to renovate, I'm going to refi, and I'm gonna repeat. And I'm not going to get distracted, and I'm going to stay on, on that path. You don't know how, how many inspirational folks that I've met that would be, you know, 70, 80 years old. You see them in a coffee shop. You'd never think, you know, anything special. And they busy, like, a mask this empire. And you say, how yeah. the heck did you do that? And, you, and, and, and we're trained, again, to think, like, look, you know no bash on NFTs. I love comic books. I'm a collector. So all that stuff's cool to me, but you know, you you, you get wrapped up in who's the next big NFT King or the next big crypto King. And you forget, you can be consistent and get there. And then the third, again, this is all falling on the same thread as patience. right? It's okay not to make your first million a year after you started your business, right? Don't look at yourself as a failure or as someone who didn't succeed because you didn't yeah. do that. Again, that's, that's something that's fed to us. Um, and, and, and it's not true. Yeah. So show especially the patience, today. especially today, it's not easy to make money um, and, 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 and the journey matters. So if you're finding yourself in a position where you're making progress and you're not moving as fast as you want to, but you're still getting there, you should feel good about that and keep pushing. Don't let society tell you that because you haven't made a gazillion dollars and you're not, you know, Kardashian. Um, uh, that that you're that you're not successful. Yeah. Uh, so those yeah. are the three things I would say.
1: Love it, love it, love love all of those. I mean, okay On that last point, it's you know so many people, very few people get there really fast. It's just that you see that right there. That's the story, and and so a lot of people tell that story. And by the way, most people don't tell it when they crash and burn shortly. <laughs> So you know, just just hold on. And if you're in real estate, or if you're a business owner, 99% of the people, it's going to take a while. It's a get rich slow type of deal. That's exactly.
0: Just- exactly.
1: Cool, uh, Vernon. Look, man, I really appreciate it. Uh, this, this has been fun it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next unfolds over the next year or two, whatever it might be. Absolutely. Um, we're both going to be in it. We're both going to be experiencing uh, whatever it is. And as you said at the beginning, uh, there's going to be opportunities and whatever that opportunity is it, and when interest rates were low, there was opportunities. When interest rates are going up, there's opportunities when interest rates peak, wherever that might end up happening, there's going to be opportunities. So, Just be on the lookout for those opportunities. How can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more uh, about you, maybe reach out and have that conversation? Absolutely.
0: Thanks for asking. Um, I'm most easily reachable on LinkedIn. So if you look me up on LinkedIn, you should DM me and I'm uh, very responsive on that platform. Easiest way to reach me. If you want to email me, you can reach me at vernon.beckford at um, dlsloans.com, all one word. And then uh, visit our website, dlsloans.com. You'll learn more about us. And there, there's a, a link to, uh, to contact us. So all, always to reach me.
1: Love it. Love it. And we'll put that all in the show notes. The listeners, you can get in touch with them there. Vernon, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Todd, for so much for uh, having me on. Had a great time. Absolutely.